0: 1 Samuel 1, so we're going to do First and Second Samuel for probably two years, <laughs> probably, we'll see how many of you are still around when we get to the end of 2 Samuel. I wanted to do the life of David, which is all of 2 Samuel, first half of 1 Samuel, but in order to do David, you have to compare him to Saul, who is the king who went before him and in order to get to Saul, you, got to get to, you have to do, so you wind up having to do the whole thing. So here's our key verse that we're going to be looking at for the next two years. That's, that's daunting, isn't it? That's the idea. Fourth line down. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. That's Samuel talking to Saul when he God set Saul aside. What does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? You see in Acts 13... We see Paul actually is talking there. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, quoting the Lord. And so that's what we want to talk about. What does that mean? What does that look like? David was far from perfect. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a terrible father. And yet he is a man after God's own heart. And so what does that mean for us? And how do we go about cultivating whatever those qualities are, um, that made David, um, made David that? That's what we want to do. That's, so that's, that's the, the thing we're going to be circling around over the next, um, little while as we work through 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now, a little context. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, it goes Joshua, Judges, Samuel. In our Bible, it goes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel. Uh, Ruth chronologically fits there, but thematically doesn't. So, in the Hebrew Bible, you go from Judges straight to Samuel, and Judges sets the stage for what we're going to read about in Samuel. So a little context at this point in Israel's history, there're 12 tribes that are all living in the land that God has given to them. They're loosely connected to one another. You would not say they're one nation necessarily. More like a confederation of 12 tribes that come to one another's aid kind of as they see fit, but it's not they're not tight. So politically there's a there's a loose confederation there um, spiritually, there, things are not going well, morally, things are not going well. If you read the beginning of judges, it says that uh, Israel was faithful as long as Joshua lived, and when Joshua died and the, his generation died, a next generation rose up that did not know God and did not know what he had done for Israel, and they begin to worship other gods, and God eventually says all right that 's how you want to that's how you, you want to be, then he, he withdraws himself in a sense and allows them to be oppressed by these other nations that they were supposed to drive out from the promised land. And the book of Judges is just a steady downward cycle. So you have rebellion and then bondage from another nation and then the people eventually cry out to God, he has mercy, and raises up a deliverer. He raises up a Gideon, he raises up a Deborah, he raises up a Samson. That man or woman leads Israel to a military victory, and during the lifespan of that judge, things are okay. Then that judge dies, and they take a step down and do the whole circle again. Then that judge dies, and they take another step down. It's terrible. Uh, The last part of Judges, the last five chapters, really set the stage for 1 Samuel. You see a decline in the priesthood. There's uh, kind of this free agency among the Levites instead of worshiping the one God in the place where God has said, this is where my presence is. They're basically out for hire. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not good it's, uh, in terms of what's happening with the priesthood. In the bigger picture, the last three chapters of Judges, I would say, is the worst story in the entire Bible. It's wretched. It's a horrendous story, gang rape, murder, civil war. It's terrible. There's nothing redemptive about it. And the, the, the theme or the thread that runs through, you see there on the screen, is this idea. is They had no king, and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. They didn't have a king, and everyone did as he or she saw fit. So you have this picture of really spiritual and moral anarchy. The priests aren't serving their function. There's no cohesiveness as a nation. And into all of that cesspool steps Samuel. And that's what we're going to look at starting today, starting with his birth. There's a certain man from Ramathane, a zophite From the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerhoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penanah. Penanah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came from Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife, Peninnah to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't, I mean more to you than ten sons. So the context there, this guy named Elkanah, he's righteous, about, He has two wives. First wife, Hannah, can't have children, so he takes a second wife. That was normal. If you could afford a second wife, if your first wife could not have children, you would, you would marry someone else. Uh, your family line was passed down to your, through your sons. So if you didn't have a son, when you died, your family died with you huge deal. And uh, the the assumption was if if there are no children, it's the woman's fault. Women would even even be considered cursed by God on some level if they were unable to have children. And so Elkanah, again, he's righteous. He's devout. He's married to Hannah. He loves her deeply. She cannot have children. So he takes this second wife, Penanah. She can have children. And because his affection is towards his first wife, his second wife is jealous. Like what she has is kids. She doesn't have the affection of her husband. She has children, and she uses that to constantly pick and poke and irritate Hannah. That word rival is troubler. She causes her trouble. She provokes her. Uh, Three times a year, Israelites were to go. to. At this point in time, it was Shiloh. God had told Moses, here, I want you to make this this portable sanctuary called the Tent of Meeting. And here's what you're going to make it out of. And here are the dimensions. And the ark is going to be in it. And I dwell in between the angels on that ark. There are these... Two things called cherubim and they have wings and it's God dwells God dwells in between that. So that's where they were supposed to worship. That's where the Israelites worshipped. The, the nations that they were driving out of the land, they worshipped under trees. and They worshipped on every hill and they worshipped on every mountain. And God said, you're not going to do that. He orders worship. It's going to be animals that you're going to bring for a sacrifice. These people are priests and these people are Levites. And they're going to help you worship me appropriately. So he had set all of that up. That's what the book of Leviticus is. It's him setting up, here's what corporate worship looks like in Israel. And so Elkanah, as a a devout and righteous man, would go three times a year to Shiloh. And it was during a feast. And so you would bring an animal. And you would sacrifice it. And part of the animal would be burned. And that was for the Lord. And part of the animal would be eaten by the priest. That was their share. And the rest of the animal you would consume with your family. It's like a, a, a celebration. Meat was it was, it was not common that you would eat meat on a, on a regular basis. So it was a big deal to get to eat meat. And Elkanah, as a way of demonstrating his affection for Hannah, would give her twice as much as he gave to everyone else. But it didn't matter because she didn't have any kids. And you know he does the he tries. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And that's sweet. You know it's like bless your bless your heart. He tries, but it doesn't work. He's not. She's devastated. She's devastated over um, her barrenness. And it says in the Bible there, the Lord closed her womb. Only person we see in the Bible explicitly who is whose womb is said to be closed by the Lord. There are other women who are um, barren at least for a time, and you can infer that that was the Lord, but it's an inference. This is the only person, Hannah's the only one that we read about explicitly that God closed her womb. We'll come back to that. So that's her situation. How does she respond to that situation? Her own barrenness and then constantly being provoked um, by this other wife, Penanah. One day, when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied, I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Very simple. What's Hannah's response to her situation is she prays. It's what she does. She goes to the temple, to this tent of meeting, and she prays. And it's not a formal prayer. It's not a not a lot of Sunday school jargon. It's this deep emotional prayer. Look at the language. Deep anguish, weep bitterly, servants' misery, pour out my soul type prayer. She's giving, She's all of her, she's giving to the Lord in prayer to the point that Eli thinks she, she's drunk. That's what he thinks. And that's how absorbed and engaged she is with the Lord in prayer. And she says to the Lord, it's an amazing statement, you give me a son and I'm going to give him back to you. It's called a Nazarite vow. No haircuts, no alcohol. You have to avoid any any dead body. So if someone in your family died, you had to avoid being around them. And normally it was like a 30-day oath that someone would take. And Hannah's saying, my son, you give him to me, it's for life. I'm giving him back to you. Think about that. This object of deep desire for her for however long she says before she even has a yes from the lord she says if you give him to me i'm going to give him right back to you and eli says may god give you what you want and you see her faith just like she eats she hasn't been able to eat because she's been so upset her face is no longer downcast that's all it takes is her praying to the lord hearing this word from the priest and and she moves on in faith i think turning point in in verse 19 Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord. So that's their family. And then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Key idea. Remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. That's a big deal for us, that idea of asking the Lord for something. So remembered. Sometimes when we remember Something's in our mind that wasn't in our mind before. It's all intellectual or mental activity. When you read in the Bible that God remembered, it's not that. He doesn't forget anything. When God remembers, it's, it's this movement towards someone. He's stepping into a situation and he's doing something kind and loving for the person who's there. And normally it's someone who we would say has been forgotten. Genesis 8-1, Noah's on the ark. God remembered Noah and sent a wind to drive the land. He knew Noah was on the ark. He's the one that put him there. He didn't forget. Noah had been there for a while with all the animals. Probably not the greatest conditions in the world. God remembers Noah and delivers him, Dries up the land. I think it's Rachel is barren. God remembers her and allows her to conceive. That's in Genesis 30 or 31, I can't remember which one. Exodus 2, the Israelites were in slavery and bondage in Egypt. God remembers the covenant he made with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he sends Moses to deliver them. That's after 400 years of slavery. You get that idea. It's someone who maybe appears to be forgotten. God remembers them. Again, it wasn't that they were ever out of his mind. He steps into their situation, and he does something kind, On their behalf, and that's Hannah prays, God remember me. And the turning point in her story is God remembering her. So how does she respond now that her situation has changed? When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you. Her husband, Elkanah, told her, stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she'd weaned him. After he was weaned, so that could be up to three or four years, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an effet of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to Eli, Pardon me, my Lord. As surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So you let that sink in. You mamas in the room, you think about that. It's your three-year-old or your four-year-old that you've been bleeding for for years. You get him, and you give him back to the Lord. She sees him about once a year after this. We'll see that next week. Then Hannah prayed, just like she prayed before when her situation was terrible. Now she prays after she's been vindicated. My heart rejoices in the Lord, not that the, in the fact that I have a child. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. Listen to these reversals. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who, are, who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. He sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. But the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. You see her response. Faithful to her vow. God, I told you this is what I was going to do and this is what I'm going to do. And she gives him. And along with her son, she gives this extravagant offering. The NIV says a three-year-old bull. It's more likely that it was three bulls because of the amount of flour and wine that she gave were equivalent for what you would put with three animals. This massive gift that she gives in addition to her son. And you see her response, this prayer that she prays in the temple in front of other people. Look what God has done is what she's saying. God's the great reverser of fortunes. It's not by strength. It's not by our strength that we're delivered. God does that. We serve a God who knows. We serve a God who weighs the deeds of people. We serve a God who's able to raise up and, and bring low, and that's what he did for me. That's what she's saying. That's that prayer. God has reversed my situation. This I was barren and disparaged, and now all of that has changed, not because of anything I've done, but because of what the Lord has said. She even named her kid because I asked. I mean, that's what she says. God did it. I did not do it. So for us, you feel like Hannah this morning. Some of you literally may be Hannah. You're married and you desire a child and it's not happening for you. And so you may be able to relate to her very directly. Maybe more metaphorically, there are others of you who would say you're barren in some area of your life. It's interesting, the Lord caused Hannah's womb to be closed. That's a tough one for us. Why would he do that? God's actions are mysterious at times. His character never is. God always is who he is. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow in him. So the things that we see, particularly in Jesus, Jesus is the clearest revelation of the Father. And so when you look at him, you've seen God. That's what Jesus says. And so when you read something like that, the Lord closed the womb of Hannah, you look at that through the lens of Jesus. Well, this is the character of God, so how do I square that action with this God who I know is compassionate and good and loving and righteous and holy? How do I do that? How do I put those things together? The Bible doesn't tell us why God closed Hannah's womb. Was he punishing her? I don't think so. There's one place in the Bible where God does that. He closes someone's womb as judgment on them. It's in 2 Samuel 6. Michael, who's David's wife, who's the daughter of Saul, is um, indignant at the way David is worshiping. And she, she uh, ridicules David. And that's a way of showing contempt for the Lord. And it says that she doesn't have a child all of, until the day she dies. She's childless. And the implication is because God has done that. But she's it. She's the one. And she showed, again, pretty high level of contempt the lord that's not hannah hannah you could actually make a case is the most righteous woman in the old testament only woman we see go to the house of the lord only woman we see pray only woman we see make a vow and complete it so she seems to be the picture of a righteous woman she's not being punished by the lord discipline hebrews 12 god disciplines those he loves it could be the case for sure there's some things that god can only work into us through pain Absolutely, and it could be that there's something in Hannah's heart that God's trying to form and shape, and the difficulty of her barrenness is what allows God to do that. If you're experiencing that in your own life, you're struggling. You feel like God's got his thumb on you, and you can't get ahead. Your business is struggling no matter how hard you work. Your finances are... are, uh, you're break-even at best. Maybe you're drowning in that way. There's a relationship thing that's not working out for you. You have a sense of where God's calling you to go when the doors are all closed. If you feel like he's closed the womb, like he's doing it, he's the cause of this situation, ask him, God, what are you trying to work in me? Are you, are you disciplining me in some way because you love me? So God says he dis- if, if you're not being disciplined, then you're not a son. And all of you who are parents and all of you who are children, you know that. That's That's reality. It could be that God is showing something to Hannah about um, himself. So he could be doing some work in Hannah. He also could be showing Hannah something about him that she can only get in pain. In chapter 1, verse 3, God's introduced as the Lord Almighty. First time we see that name for God in all of the Old Testament. Almighty means the, the, the kind of the captain of the armies, either the armies of heaven or the armies of earth. It's the first time we see that. It speaks to God as king of the universe. And Hannah is the first person who prays to God that way. She says, Lord Almighty. She's the first person in all of Scripture. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Moses. Not says, Lord Almighty. She's learned something new about God. Her pain has shaped her theology. If she... It seems like if she doesn't experience this level of barrenness, she doesn't know God as the king of the universe, as the only one who actually can do something about her situation. could very well be that God has you where he has you because there's something he wants to teach you about him that you can't learn unless you're in that spot. Hannah's story is part of a bigger story. Sarah, barren until she was 90. Then she has... Isaac, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, barren until Isaac prays for her. She has Jacob and Esau. Jacob's favored wife, Rachel, barren until God remembers her. She has Joseph who delivers um, the Israelites or, or saves them from famine. Elizabeth, barren until she has John the Baptist. You can see some very significant men in the Bible are born to women who were barren until God miraculously steps in. And there's, there's something about that. Their story is part of his story. It's almost like God is wanting to put a circle around these kids and highlight them and say there's something different about them. They were conceived in supernatural ways, and you need to take note of that mom and dad, and you need to take note of that people of Israel. So it's it's not all the way across the board. Maybe it's not enough to call it a pattern, but that's four times, five times that we see someone who's significant in the history of Israel, being born to a woman who has trouble conceiving, who struggles with barrenness for some period of time in her life to the point that she's known as such. That's what she's known for. And then God enables them to conceive. Now, Hannah winds up having five more kids after that. She doesn't know that at the time she's going to have five more children, but she does. And so we see God, again, he, he opens her womb and she continues to be fruitful. It could be for you, and it is for you. You're part of a bigger story. Your story's part of his story. And we can't see, we can't connect those dots, and we're not high enough up on the mountain to be able to get the perspective for what God's doing in our city and in our world. And it could very well be that the difficulty that you're experiencing now is part of a larger purpose of what God is doing in the world. But... All, practically, you're, never, you're not going to know why. We, we're people, we want to know why. We want explanations. You're not going to get one. It could be that God is disciplining you. It could be He's trying to show you something about Himself. It could be because of some larger work that He's doing and that you're a part of. It could be all of those. It could be none of those. You, you're not going to get an answer. But what we see from Hannah is her response. And that's something that teaches us. She prays with everything she has, rather than pulling herself away from God who has closed her womb, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm so angry at you. Look at all this stuff. Rather than doing all of that, she presses in, pours out her heart, pours out her soul to the Lord, weeps bitterly before him, totally absorbed in prayer. If you're Hannah this morning, can you respond in a similar way? She prays specifically, I want a son. That's what she wants. Do you know the desires of your own heart? If Psalm thirty seven four is true and God gives us the desires of, of your heart, if I gave you a note card right now and said, Give me three desires, most of you couldn't you couldn't do it. You couldn't write them down. Think how much you struggle once a year when we say, What do you want for your birthday? You don't even come in. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know what we want. We can buy most of the stuff that we want, but that's all superficial. We're not even tapped into the true desires of our heart, the things that we can't buy from Amazon. We don't even know what those things are. To ask the Lord, do you know what the desires of your heart are? If he showed up right now and said, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. Would you even know what to ask for? Hannah knew, I want a son. How honest she was. She doesn't hide behind pretty language. She's raw, bitter tears, it says she prayed. God, I'm miserable. That's what she says. God, remember your servant's misery. Again, pouring her soul out to him. Do you ever pray that way? Some of you are like me, you're thinkers, and so that language does not really resonate with you, but there's something about praying with your whole heart that God responds to that. You don't have to do it in front of a group of people, but is there, is there ever a time and is there ever a place where you would say unfiltered before the Lord, this is what I want and this is how I feel about you not giving it to me right now. This is what this is doing to me. It's not about being a good soldier. It's about being honest before the Lord. I'm broken here. I'm bankrupt here. I've got nothing here. I feel like you've got your thumb on my life and you're preventing me. From moving forward. I need you. Ember me. And notice she prays boldly. There's no equivocation. There's nowhere in that prayer that says, God, if it's your will, give me a son. He's not going to give her a son if he doesn't want to. And he certainly doesn't need our permission to only do his will. That's all he does is his will. He doesn't do That's what he. He doesn't need us to say, God, this is what I want. And if it's okay with you, and if it's your will, then you can do it. He said, oh, okay, well, I wasn't going to do that before. You were going to convince me of it. He's not like that. You're charming. You're not that charming. You're not going to convince him to do something he doesn't want to do. So ask boldly, what do you want? What do you want specifically, honestly, boldly, no equivocation? Yes or no, God? I want a son. You're either saying yes or you're saying no. Sometimes we we say, God, if it's your will, because we're letting them off the hook in case something doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. Ask him, again, specifically and honestly and boldly. We're going to take some time and pray. We've got about 15 minutes. We're going to give a little extra time for ministry this morning. Some of you are literal Hannahs. You want a baby, and you don't have one. We want to pray for you, that God would help you and your spouse conceive. Many of you maybe are more—it's spiritual, it's metaphorical. There's some area of your life, and you would use say, "I'm I'm barren in this area. There's no fruit. I'm not seeing anything happen. I feel like honestly, I feel like God's holding out on me. He could fix it, and He's not. He could step in and do something, and He's not. Would you this morning be willing to say, "I'm going to re-engage"? I know that's hard. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's difficult to step back into that spot of trust and hope and to put your whole heart out there when you don't know God's actions are mysterious, but his character never is. And so can you trust him this morning as a good father? Would you be willing to re-engage him with your whole heart this morning? Love ministry teams up here, and we'll pray with you about that. And we would love the opportunity to do that. Think how much it meant to Hannah, to have that one word from Eli. He was a terrible priest, and still one word from him. God used to encourage her. and She was no longer downcast. These guys up here would love to do that with you. If you aren't comfortable praying with somebody, you can kneel over there on that pew and we'll leave you alone and you can pour your heart out to the Lord without, uh, without anybody else involved. we love the opportunity to do that. And for some of you, that doesn't resonate. You're not, you're not Hannah. There's not this deep desire that you have that's being unfulfilled. And I would encourage you, when you see somebody go forward, you pray for them from your seat. You don't have to know what's going on. You don't have to know their name. You just pray for God to work. You think about her in deep anguish. And you think about these guys who are in deep anguish. Some of them for years have been desiring to see God work in a particular way, and he hasn't been. You pray for him to work in their circumstances this morning. Ask him to, to break in and to break through. Let's pray, and then you guys can respond however you're led. If you're helping with ministry you can go ahead and come forward too. holy spirit i pray that you would come and that you would speak to the men and women in this room i pray if there are any who feel like they're being punished that's not where we live we don't live under that economy we live under the economy of grace for those of us who are in jesus we've been saved from your wrath father the debt for our sins has already been paid So I pray for people to step out from under that sense of condemnation. If there are those here who haven't yet made a choice, and they are under your judgment on some level, they haven't made a choice to follow Jesus, let today be the day. Let today be the day. God, I pray for the Hannahs in the room. I pray for those who physically would say, that's me, for the husbands and wives in this room who are struggling with conceiving children and we pray god that just like you did for sarah and abraham and just like you did for um for zachariah and elizabeth and just like you did for hannah that you would open up wombs that everyone who desires children would have them they would be able to say yes we were fruitful and we multiplied and god i pray for the spiritual hannah's men and women in this room Who would say, God has closed, fill in the blank. God, I pray that you would give them a Samuel today. They would be able to say, God did this because I asked. God, would you stir us relationally that we would relate to you as sons and daughters in a way that we would ask you honestly and boldly and specifically for the things that are in our heart. God, I pray that we would trust you enough as a good father. to come before you in whichever way if it's going to be a yes or a no we would trust you as a good father to ask so would you stir hope in this place this morning Would you start faith in this place this morning and God would you move in the hearts and in the circumstances of the Hannah's in our midst this morning in Jesus name amen